In the 12 months between August 1641 and the 22nd of August 1642, the path of the history of Britain and Ireland was changed forever. It was then that seemingly irrevocable differences between the king and his people drove the country towards a civil war, which would divide communities and families for the rest of the century and beyond, which would bring destruction across the three kingdoms, and which would leave hundreds of thousands of men dead or maimed, women widowed and children orphaned. In this talk, historian and author Jonathan Healy tells the story of how the events of that fateful year inexorably changed the lives of men and women, whether rich or poor, well-known or now lost to history. As the summer of 1641 began to fade away and chiller winds of autumn approached, King Charles I was preparing a fight back that would save his rule. It was nearly a year now since the long parliament had first met. Already it had sat for a greater length of time than any of its predecessors. Already it had wrought political reform from a reluctant king. Both the architects and the architecture of his personal rule had been torn down. The Earl of Strafford had gone to the executioner's block, William Lord to the tower. Many of the judges and key officers of state had been impeached. Ship money had been bound. Much of the regime's high church ecclesiastical policy had been overturned. The notorious law courts of High Commission and Star Chamber had been abolished, and acts had been passed to ensure Parliament was never dissolved without its own consent, and that it must sit at least every three years. A constitutional revolution was already in train then, though the king retained one critical power to appoint his own advisers. Parliament had secured its position as a legislative body, it didn't yet control the administration. The king still chose the government for now, and he still controlled the military. That summer, Charles left London and travelled north to Edinburgh. Here, he hoped to buy off the Scottish Covenanters, whose rebellion had kicked the whole thing off back in 1637, with some serious concessions. At Westminster, meanwhile, Parliament was heading towards recess, and as a nasty outbreak of plague took hold in London, MPs were keen to get away as soon as possible. As Charles journeyed north, several key pieces fell into place for him. First, the Scottish army was disbanded, at a stroke removing the key military support for the Reformist Party at Westminster, increasingly now known as the Junto. Second, the English army was also rolled up. In some ways, this was a blow to Charles, as it had been a bastion of support for him. But in others, it provided an opportunity, as demobbed officers started trudging back to London, where their loyalty to the king and their hatred of the reformers might become useful. Third, Charles was able to leave his affairs in capable hands down south, asking his talented and trusted official Edward Nicholas, a Wiltshire man of considerable experience and skill, to try and build support. Finally, Parliament themselves managed to engineer a public relations disaster. On the cusp of recess, an order was passed that gave licence to local communities to pull down Laudian innovations in the church. Altar rails, stained glass windows and the like were all to be taken down. Over the coming weeks, many local enthusiasts went about this work with gusto, drawing concern, even horror, from many moderates. How dare ordinary folk like this pull down the fabric of the church? Might not this popular iconoclasm be a worse cure than the disease of Laudianism? Did it not tend towards anarchy? 
Almost imperceptibly, there was a shifting of public opinion. The crowds that accompanied the trial of Stratford had spooked many moderates. They were all for curbing the excesses of an absolutist monarch, but to place power in the hands of a populist mob, so they saw it, this was a swing too far the other way. And the religious direction of travel didn't help here either. The attempts to pull down the episcopacy, the bishops, were immensely controversial. If such a key plank to the Church of England could be ripped out in such a way, then what might be next? In an explosive speech, one MP, a Mr Walker, argued that if the bishops were abolished, then private property itself would be next. I see some are moved with a number of hands against the bishops, which I confess rather inclines me to their defence. For I look upon the episcopy as a counterscarf or outwork, which if it be taken by this assault of the people, and with all this mystery once revealed, that we must deny them nothing when they ask it thus in troops. We may in the next place have as hard a task to defend our propriety as we have lately had to recover it from the prerogative. If by multiplying hands and petitions they prevail for an equality in things ecclesiastical, this next demand perhaps may be the like equality in things temporal. With the king away, Edward Nicholas made it his policy to cultivate royalist support in Parliament. A key element to this was an attempt to bolster the king's party in the House of Lords. By this point, many of the more conservative lords were already on board, but Nicholas also realised that the bishops, all 26 of whom still had the right to sit and vote in the lords, would form the bedrock of a royalist party. With that in place, any radical acts that came up from the still junto-dominated commons could simply be blocked in the upper house. To shore things up, and again under Nicholas's guidance, Charles began the appointment of five new bishops to the Lords. These were men of impeccable moderate credentials, Calvinists without any taint of Lordianism. These were not the kind of men who would have found favour in the 1630s, but, as Charles noted with a wry smile, I have somewhat altered from my former thoughts to satisfy the times. The idea was that these appointments would appeal to the moderate reformists who, since the initial sitting of the Long Parliament, had become concerned by the direction of travel and who were increasingly ready to rally behind the king. Of the new bishops, the most spectacular appointment of all was John Williams, latterly Bishop of Lincoln, former opponent of Lord and former guest of the Tower of London. He was a Calvinist and a reformist, a friend to the Bedford Circle, but by the summer of 41, he was moving towards the royalist moderates. And for this, he was rewarded with the Archbishopric of York, although he also retained one of his old roles as Dean of Westminster Abbey, something that would be crucial for reasons nobody yet knew. When Parliament reconvened at the end of October then, the Junto knew they were going to have a harder time pushing reforms. No longer did they have the strength they had enjoyed in the spring, nor did they feel they could leave things alone. Could, they wondered, Charles really be trusted to accept the reforms already in place? Did not the army plots suggest he would try, as soon as he could, to use military force to launch a counter-coup, to dissolve Parliament and have the main reformers arrested? Indeed, when news arrived from Scotland of an attempted strike against leading covenanters, which could have led to blood on the streets of Edinburgh, and which came to be known as the Incident, distrust of Charles only magnified. To counter the Royalist revival, the Junto embarked on a project to launch a massive appeal somewhere they thought they had plenty of support, to the people. 
It would come in the form of a remonstrance, a great document that listed the iniquities of Charles's rule, what Parliament had done to reform them and what remained still to do. Known to history as the Grand Remonstrance, though the phrase wasn't used at the time, this was supposed to be the main parliamentary business through November. Instead, something else happened that changed everything. On the 1st of November, at around 10am, the Commons were interrupted by the sudden appearance at the Bar of the House of 17 Privy Councillors. The day before, an exhausted rider had arrived at the gates of Leicester House in the West End, asking for an urgent audience with the Earl of Leicester, Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. His report was the stuff of nightmares. Ireland was in open revolt. Dublin had come within an inch of falling to rebels. The biggest insurgence, though, was in Ulster. Here, the messenger said, the rebel aims were nothing short of the extermination of the entire Protestant settler population. From the point of view of Westminster and Whitehall, the crucial thing about the Irish Rebellion was that it meant the English, and hopefully the Scottish governments, would need to raise armies. And this meant a question of who would be in charge. To the king, this was one of his fundamental prerogatives. But to the junto, there was a real question as to whether a new royal army could be trusted not to be used on them. For now, the junto strategy was to work through Parliament the normal way. And this meant that any reforms would have to go to the Lords and eventually to the King himself. The aim was to persuade the King to give up one of his key prerogatives, the right to appoint his own advisers. This would provide some security against any Royalist counter-coup. But it would have been the most remarkable reform yet, a revolution in itself. Monarchs could not pass laws without consulting their people. This was largely accepted, save for a few hardline absolutists. But their right to appoint their own government was different. This had been part of the royal prerogative since time immemorial. Rip this away from the king and vest it in the representatives of his people. And this would be a remarkable step towards parliamentary government. It was a tough sell within the walls of the Palace of Westminster, and even more so a few hundred yards along King Street at Whitehall. But where the junto did enjoy considerable support was in the streets of London. Here, a more radical movement was stirring. That summer, particularly now censorship from the bishops and Star Chamber had broken down, an avalanche of print had fallen from the presses. This was religious, political, constitutional, serious and scurrilous. One literary spat was about the validity of the new independent religious groups springing up across the country. On the one hand, the waterman and poet John Taylor mocks the proliferation of small sects, while on the other, the polemicist and ironmonger Henry Walker sprung to their defence. At some point, each of the two adversaries deployed a similar image of their opponent being shat out of the devil's arse. It wasn't just men either. One of the sensations of the autumn was a stirring claim for religious egalitarianism by the radical Baptist Catherine Chidley who argued that true ministers of the church could be tailors, felt makers, button makers, tent makers, shepherds or ploughmen. More to the point, the fact she herself was a woman was bracing indeed. Less edifying, though, was the stream of sensationalist reports of massacres in Ireland, which took an undoubtedly fairly violent uprising and turned it into an apocalypse on England's doorstep. The press didn't just bring out new ideas and burgeoning freedom of thought, it also contributed to an atmosphere of paranoia. By December, two critical developments had taken place. One was the passing of the Great Remonstrance, though not without an extremely heated debate. 
I did not dream that we should remonstrate downward, tell stories to the people, and talk of the king as of a third person, said a shocked Sir Edward Deering. This is a remonstrance to the people. Remonstrances ought to be to the king for redress, declared the moderate Sir John Culpepper. We are not sent to please the people. But to John Pym, the dynamic leader of the reformists in the Commons, this was the whole point. It was time, he said, to speak plain English, lest posterity shall say that England was lost, and no man durst speak truth. The most rancorous debate continued into the early hours of Tuesday the 23rd of November, when, by the flicker of candlelight, MPs finally voted. The division was astonishingly tight. By just 159 votes to 148, the remonstrance was passed. Exhausted MPs started to file out, but there was one last skirmish. It's not entirely clear from surviving accounts what happened, but the defeated opponents of the remonstrance seem to have passed a vote by acclamation to prevent its printing and publishing. This was a body blow to the whole project, for what good was a grand remonstrance to the people if the people couldn't read it? So the junto forced a final vote. In the dead of night, by 124 votes to 101, the thinning house voted to allow publishing, but not printing. By Wednesday, manuscript copies were on the newsstands. Any victory for the junto, though, was short-lived, for on the 25th of November, the king finally returned from Scotland to his capital. He was treated to a lavish entrance. It even had the distinction of being called a triumph mimicking the procession given to victorious Roman generals after a successful campaign. Charles's campaign against the Scots had not been triumphant or even vaguely successful in any meaningful way, but instead the nature of his royal entry to London reflected something else. The city leadership were moving towards royalism. Many of the rich and powerful in the city were fearsome of the stirring of Londoners more generally against the government and against the bishops in particular and they worried about the social radicalism being called forth by the new religious groups and the radical press. Men in charge had little time for the irreverence of Henry Walker or the feminism of Catherine Chidley. An alliance with a newly powerful king seemed a sensible one. To cement this alliance, a delegation from the city attended on the king at Hampton Court at the beginning of December. Several city politicians were duly knighted or given baronetcies. Finally, with the men ready to leave, they asked one favour of Charles. London, they said, had suffered from a trade stoppage, they said, as a result of the Scottish conflict and the political crisis. Could the king perhaps be persuaded to spend Christmas at Whitehall? The presence of the royal household would bring much-needed spending to the city. Flush with his recent lavish reception, the king agreed. By this time, the London crowd had already begun to rear its head. On the 29th of November, with the king having recently replaced Parliament's own guard with a more steadfastly royalist one, under the loyal and militant Earl of Dorset, there was a face-off outside Westminster between the troops and a chanting crowd. Dorset ordered his men to fire, but they disobeyed the order. The next day, Parliament moved to dismiss the guard. Into the second week of December, and the junto was still trying to consolidate its supporters. A petition by Londoners against the bishops had been delivered to Parliament. The aim of this was to remove the bishops' right to vote in the Lords and so end the blockage of junto legislation coming from the Commons. The petition was presented by a stream of coaches, a way of showing that this wasn't the poor, this was the respectable middle sort of citizens. 
Then, on the 15th, the Junto finally managed to pass an order to have their remonstrance printed. By that point, though, the king was making his own move. Initially, his strategy was to appeal even more fully to the moderates. Two royal proclamations around the 12th did the business. One announced a return to the Church of Queen Elizabeth's Day, renouncing both Laudian innovations and the more recent iconoclastic excesses. At Dover, the proclamation caused much rejoicing, the people crying out, God bless his majesty, we shall have our old religion settled again. The other was squarely political. It ordered those MPs who had stopped attending the Commons to return by the middle of January. These were likely to be moderate men who'd quietly stopped attending as the Junto consolidated their hold in the lower house. With these MPs back on the benches and with the bishops bolstering the royalists in the Lords, the Junto faced losing their majority in both houses. Without a dramatic intervention from somewhere, they were doomed. The revolution would be over. It's hard to unpack exactly what was going on in Whitehall that winter. The secrets of the shadowy corridors of the royal palace, long since gone of course, lie tantalisingly beyond the grasp of the historian's endeavours. But from what we can see, it seems there were two forces pulling at Charles, both from within his advisory council and within his own mind. On the one hand, the proclamation of the 12th of December suggests a desire to work with Parliament, once it was safely royalist in composition, of course. The junto could be outmanoeuvred through safely constitutional means, and perhaps some of the revolution of 1641 might be allowed to remain. On the other, the gathering band of armed men at the palace, now often referred to as cavaliers, held out the possibility of another pathway, a more violent one, in which a royalist counter-coup might overawe Parliament and force a dissolution. Whichever way the king went, his cause received a setback on the 21st of December, when the annual local elections in London returned a Puritan and a reformist majority. No longer could he be quite as certain of support from the city as he had been, though the mayor remained a steadfast supporter. Critically, the defeat might have serious implications for control of the London militia, which was likely to be a decisive force if there was to be violence on the streets of the capital. But Charles could still control the tower. The current lieutenant was a Junto sympathiser, so he was asked by the king to resign. The replacement chosen by Charles couldn't have been more of a threat to the reformists. Thomas Lunsford was the archetypal cavalier loyalist, a veteran of the bishop's wars and a man with a fearsome, desperate reputation. Some even said he was a cannibal, but even if this was fairly far-fetched, he was definitely not a man who could be trusted to take charge of a massive arsenal with cannons pointing at the City of London. Lunsford's appointment led to an outcry in the commons and on the streets. On St Stephen's Day and the day after, the 27th, crowds filled the yards outside Parliament. By this point, Charles had decided to back down and rescinded the appointment of Lunsford, but it was too late to prevent scuffles around Parliament in which loyalists attacked London protesters, calling them roundheads. The next day, crowds appeared again, even larger this time, chanting, no bishops, no popish lords. Some of the bishops found it impossible to pass through the hostile crowds to take their seats at the Lords. Meanwhile, outside Westminster Abbey, things took a violent turn as protesters tried to get into the building and children from the nearby school pelted them with stones from the roofs. One rock hit a protest leader, 
one Sir Richard Wiseman, an Essex baronet who had once fallen victim to Star Chamber, been imprisoned in horrific conditions and was now making a name for himself as a popular agitator. But this was to be his last day of angry protest, for the hurled rock knocked him clean out and he would die from his wounds. As roundheads and cavaliers faced off and insulted one another, blood had been shed on the streets of London. That day, Charles issued a proclamation, drafted by Edward Nicholas. The citizens must go home immediately. If not, Charles ordered the trained bands, by shooting with bullets or otherwise, to slay and kill such of them as shall persist in the tumultuary and seditious ways and disorders. The key moment came the next day, though, and it came from the bishops. John Williams, horrified by the mass protests outside his deanery, passed a petition to the king, who ordered Lord Keeper Edward Littleton to present it to the lords. It argued that Parliament was unfree because of the mass protests and because the bishops were unable to attend. It was passed to a number of the bishops for signing. It immediately changed the game. Both commons and lords worried not only that this might form the pretext for the king to dissolve Parliament without its consent and thus illegally, but also that the royalists might use either earlier crowds or the Scottish army to argue that the whole long Parliament had been illegitimate. All the gains since November 1640 now stood in the balance. The response was decisive. The 12 bishops who signed the petition were imprisoned, mostly in the tower. Suddenly, the junto held sway in both houses. The revolution had been saved. Or had it? On the 1st of January, the king's strategy was listing, but not yet lost. Paradoxically, the arrest of the bishops and the junto's consequent control of the lords had actually calmed things down. The crowd stayed home for now, perhaps because they were no longer being encouraged by the junto, perhaps because they were increasingly fearful of the cavaliers gathering at Whitehall. Still, if any attempt to grab control of the government and the forces was made by the junto, the king could simply use his royal veto. Around this time, a series of new appointments were made within the government. Rumours said that John Pym himself was offered the position of Chancellor of the Exchequer, though these have never been corroborated and seem less than wholly plausible. Instead, new positions went to key moderate royalists, notably Lucius Carey, Viscount Falkland, and John Culpepper. It is possible that with these former reformists in place within the government, that Charles could have taken a relatively conciliatory strategy, waiting for the bulk of MPs to respond to the proclamation of the 12th of December to come back to Westminster. Even the loss of the majority of the bishops in the Lords would not matter too much, if the Commons had a strong moderate royalist party. It is also possible that the scheme that Charles embarked upon in the next couple of days was part of this. As things turned out, though, it would be his undoing. On the 3rd of January, Charles had his Attorney General, Edward Herbert, announce to the Lords that he was impeaching five members of the Commons, including John Pym, Denzel Hollis and John Hampton, plus one peer, the Lord Mandeville, future Earl of Manchester. In a charitable interpretation, Charles expected impeachment proceedings to tie up the houses until his moderate MPs returned. The response in Parliament, though, was horror, especially when it emerged that royal agents had entered the houses of some of the accused and sealed up their papers. Impeachment was a relatively new process at this point, and it was far from clear that the king's attorney could accuse sitting MPs in this way, and the sealing of papers was considered a clear breach of privilege. 
That evening, London simmered in a state of severe tension. There were strange meetings deep in the Palace of Whitehall. At midnight, new gunners were introduced to the Tower of London. It appeared that a royalist coup was being prepared. The next morning, it seems, some MPs had received a warning. Almost certainly from the courtier Lucy Hay, Countess of Carlisle, who had developed a close relationship with John Pym, that the King was planning to come to Parliament that day, possibly with some of the armed men he had been gathering at his palace. At lunchtime, another report came that something was afoot. Around 2pm, with MPs taking their seats after dinner, there was movement at Whitehall. The King stepped out into a courtyard and gathered a posse of armed men, perhaps some 500. Coming through the gate and out into the street, he commandeered a private coach and began a procession down King Street with his armed followers behind him, towards Parliament. By this point, a messenger of the French ambassador had rushed to Parliament to warn MPs of what was happening. The five accused MPs slipped out into the back rooms and onto waiting boats, though they were still in the building when the King arrived. Entering the chamber, attended only by his nephew, Charles Louis, the Elector Palatine, King Charles ascended the Speaker's chair. I am sorry, he announced, to have this occasion to come unto you. He asked that the five men be handed over, pausing as he spoke, casting his eye around the house. He asked the Speaker where they were, Speaker Lentil spoke on bended knee. May it please your majesty, I have neither eyes to see nor tongue to speak in this place, but as the house is pleased to direct me, whose servant I am here. I do not see any of them, said Charles. I think I should know them. All my birds have flown. The anger was showing on Charles's face. He began his withdrawal. As he left into the lobby, he heard cries coming from the house of privilege, privilege. That evening, London was utterly taut once more. Rumours of cavalier violence darted around the city, but the peace just about held. The next day, Charles tried again, this time travelling to the Guildhall to demand the five members be handed over. But the city wouldn't budge, and huge crowds gathered chanting, privileges of parliament. As Charles made his way back by coach through the knotted streets of the capital, someone ran up to him and cast a pamphlet in his direction. A biblical call to arms against tyrants. To your tents, O Israel. The man who threw it was the radical polemicist Henry Walker, the ironmonger. Charles was visibly shaken by these events, especially the massive popular protests. Within a couple of days, he took a momentous decision. He would move his court out of London and head to the country. On the evening of the 10th, he slipped out of Whitehall and headed for Hampton Court. Then he moved on to Windsor. The King had always gone on progress around the country, of course, but this was different. Everyone knew there were now two political centres, Roundhead and Cavalier. As the King left London, MPs finally returned to Westminster, accompanied by a massive, triumphant and heavily militaristic procession, including the five members. Their business now was finalising the exclusion of bishops, impeaching the Attorney-General and ensuring their security through a crucial legislative project, the control of the militia. Not just control of the forces being raised for Ireland, but of the whole military apparatus of the country. Popular protests eased, though there were massive marches and petitions at the end of January representing the city's poor and the city's women. The King refused to disavow Attorney-General Herbert, but he did concede to the exclusion of bishops, perhaps at the instigation of the Queen. By this point, he was throwing concessions at Parliament to allow time for her to get out of the country, to the continent, hopefully to return with military aid. The country was increasingly desperate. 
I find all here full of fears and void of hopes, one Kentishman wrote to a cousin back home. Families were at rancour, he said. Gentlemen were never unanimous. Nay, more I have heard foul language and desperate quarrellings, even between old and entire friends. The king, meanwhile, was actively trying to rally supporters, and his next move was to take control of as much military gear as possible. After the tower, the control of which was still uncertain, the next largest arsenals in the country were Portsmouth and Hull. On the 23rd of April, Charles appeared outside the town gates of Hull, backed by some 300 horsemen and his eight-year-old son, James Duke of York, the future James II. But its Parliament-appointed governor, Sir John Hotham, had directions not to yield the town. His men pulled up the drawbridges and shut the gates. The king, from outside the town walls, was forced into a humiliating negotiation with Hotham. But in the end, having proclaimed him a traitor, he had no choice but to retreat. At the same time, Parliament had crossed its own Rubicon. With Ireland still in revolt, news of royalist conspiracies appearing by the day, and the king out in the country doing who knows what, Parliament finally passed the legislation to take control of the militia. Critically, when they did, they accepted that the king would not pass it, so they declared it to be an ordinance, legislation that could proceed without the royal assent. This was a remarkable step, because ordinances were normally saved for those occasions where the king was incapacitated or away. But Charles was nothing of the sort. In fact, he remained in regular contact with Westminster. By taking control through an ordinance, Parliament were implying that the king was somehow unfit to rule. It was a move that produced a flood of pamphlet debates, for it ultimately came to a question of sovereignty. Did it lie with the king or did it lie with Parliament? Effectively, it forced both sides to set out the ideological basis of their position. For all the role of religion in the controversies and the breakdown that was leading the country towards civil war, there was also a deep question of law and constitutional theory at play. The king's ultimate response to the militia ordinance, though, was to deploy his own mechanism for raising troops, the commissions of array. In many counties, both the ordinance and the array were activated, and local people were forced to choose whose forces to support. Many tried to stay neutral, though in vain. Meanwhile, there was a propaganda war to be won. In June, Parliament offered 19 propositions to Charles as a basis for peace. These would have been a radical power grab by the representatives of the people, so they had little chance of acceptance from the king. Perhaps most important, they led both sides to publish documents setting out their key positions. The interesting thing about these is the constitutional and social arguments they made. The royalists, in a famous response to the 19 propositions, in the name of the king but penned by his closest advisers, conceded that the constitution should be mixed, but pointed out that Parliament had never chosen the government, and argued that such radical reform tended towards anarchy. There should be a balance between monarchy, aristocracy and democracy, represented by the three estates of king, lords and commons. But amongst these, the commons, while... An excellent conserver of liberty is never intended for any share in government or the choosing of them that should govern. It also played strikingly on fears of the world turned upside down and the spectres of famous medieval rebels. If the monarch fell, so would the church, and then... The common people set themselves up for themselves, call parity and independence liberty, destroy all rights and proprieties, all distinctions of families and merit, and by this means, this splendid 
and excellently distinguished form of government end in a dark, equal chaos of confusion, and the long line of our many noble ancestors in a Jack Cade or what Tyler. The crucial point here, hit upon by the royalists, is that no longer could the junto be said to be arguing in favour of the ancient constitution. What they were now proposing was a constitutional revolution. Crucially, the king's response itself provoked a radical riposte. It came from the pen of Henry Parker, whose observations upon some of His Majesty's late answers and expresses hit London's bookstands at the end of July. Parker understood that the central question was now not about personalities or policies. It was about the origins of power, of sovereignty. Where, he asked, did ultimate authority lie? Power, Parker wrote, is originally inherent in the people, and it was Parliament who properly represented those people. If the 19 propositions only implied parliamentary sovereignty, Parker's observations announced it out loud. By summer 1642, there were two political ideologies in play. By July, it was quite clear that these issues were unlikely to be solved at the negotiating table, though. That month, the Earl of Essex had conducted massive musters in London, and the King had finally got round to naming a commander for his army, the experienced Earl of Lindsay, though he also gave a key role to his rather tempestuous nephew, Prince Rupert. The Navy, meanwhile, had declared for Parliament. The final spark, though, came at the start of August. At this point, Parliament published an even more militant declaration, ordering their followers to fight and slay the so-called delinquents around the King. At exactly the same time, the King issued his own proclamation, telling his supporters to be at Nottingham by the end of the month, where he would raise his standard. With the campaigning season beginning to wane for another year, both sides were making it official. The reality was, though, that war was already being fought, declared or not. The parliamentary diarist, Sir Simmons Dews, seems to have come to the horrible realisation that this was now a hot war around the 8th of August, when reports came to Parliament of a skirmish in Somerset near the Mendip Hills. A reformist and a Puritan, he nonetheless placed the blame on the men he called the fiery spirits in Parliament, the radical side of the Roundhead Party. Others were simply despondent, Bolstrode Whitlock was horrified by it all. It is strange to note how we have insensibly slid into this beginning of a civil war, by one unexpected accident after another, as waves of the sea. We scarce know how, but from paper combats we are now come to the question of raising forces and naming a general and officers of our army. Who was to blame for all this? An intransigent king? An upstart junto? evil councillors, ambitious Puritans. The reality was that the track had been laying way back in the previous autumn. It was this point where Charles established his firm desire to defeat the junto, and this point where the Irish insurgency meant a struggle over the control of armed forces became inevitable. With trust so low between each side, King and Junto were always likely to clash over the appointment of government officials, especially, of course, those in command of the militia. In doing so, the parliamentarians were staking out for a political revolution. No longer could they claim to be defending the ancient constitution. Instead, they had to argue that they, as representatives of the people, could be better trusted to govern the country than the king. It was a point of no return. We hope you've enjoyed this talk. Now go to our website 
worldturnedupsidedown.co.uk to listen to the sequel to this programme, in which Dr Healy traces events in the 12 months after Charles Stuart, soon to be crowned Charles II, returned to Britain on the 25th of May 1660. Just how universal was his welcome? What vengeance was visited on former enemies? How did religious groups such as the Presbyterians fare? And to learn more about Britain in the 17th century from all levels of society, read his best-selling book, The Blazing World, A New History of Revolutionary England, published by Bloomsbury and described by The Times as exhaustively researched, vigorously argued and teeming with the furious joy of 17th century life. More of our programmes can also be downloaded from Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And do subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The World Turned Upside Down. Simply click on the button on the website and you won't miss any of our regular new programmes.